Church of God, today we continue our series on the revelation of Jesus Christ to his churches by turning to the letter of Thyatira in Revelation 2. It's on page 1915 of the Bibles that are provided in the pews. Page 1915. We've been looking this fall at what it means to be the church, and to do that, we've been exploring these seven letters that Jesus dictates to the Apostle John here in the first chapters of Revelation. These seven churches of Jesus Christ living in the shadow of the Roman Empire to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in each of these letters to the churches, with the help of a devotional by John Stott, uh, we've been drawing out a central characteristic of the church that can help us reflect on our own experience uh, of, what it, of being the church. And so for when we looked at the letter to Ephesus, Pastor Carl taught us about how love is a characteristic of the church. And we looked at what it means to live lives of love in the world. When Pastor Amanda preached on the letter to Smyrna, she pointed us to suffering as a characteristic of the church, and we asked the question, what it means about us as a church if we do not suffer for our faith? Last week, we looked at a, the church in Pergamum, a church characterized by truth, and we asked what it means to stand up for truth in a culture that doesn't always recognize the truth. And this week, with the letter to Pergamum, we're going to be looking at holiness as a characteristic of the church. What does it mean for the church of God? to be holy. And as we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in your word you promise to us that you will be our God and that we will be your people, that you promise to us that you forgive our sins and make us holy. And Lord, we thank you that we are able to confirm those promises with the sign and seal of the sacrament of baptism this morning. Lord, we pray that as we approach your word now that you would open our eyes to the ways in which Jesus Christ is the answer to the promises that you make to us. Lord, we pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God and who's in, in whose name we pray. Amen. Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I love your deeds. I, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more now than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. 
Then all the church will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's from Psalm, chapter, from Psalm 2 that we just sang. I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like, pot, like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, so far over the course of this series, we've spent our time in our tours of these churches on the western coast of what's modern-day Turkey. But today, we're going to be traveling about 50 miles east of Pergamum, inland, to a smaller, lesser-known city called Thyatira. Pergamum was a proud and mighty city just because of its geography. Pergamum, the, the church that we looked at last week, was, it was on a high hill that jutted out of the plain on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And it was an impressive-looking city, even from a long distance away. But Thyatira is a much more humble location. And you can see that even in this picture, the photographers had to do some creative framing to make this look like a really impressive-looking city. Thyatira is a small city that sits in a valley between the mountains. There's nothing impressive about it. There's no sights to see. There's nothing that would make anyone want to visit Thyatira. And so Thyatira had to find a different way of establishing itself in the province of Asia Minor. And Thyatira did that by becoming a trading city where merchants would stop on their way to Pergamum to trade in fine craftsmanship, in textiles, woodworking, jewelry, pottery. But the most famous of Thyatira's craftsmen's guilds was its bronze and brass craftsmanship. Thyatira became famous for producing beautiful works of bronze and brass, and people would come from all over the world to trade in these goods. And the way that trade worked in ancient Thyatira was that craftsmen would join a guild. And if you weren't part of a guild in Thyatira, you weren't allowed to practice your craft. And each of these guilds had a patron deity, a patron god or goddess. And for the bronze crafters in Thyatira, their patron deity was the god Apollo, the son of Zeus. And this was also the form that emperor worship took in the city of Thyatira. The emperor was worshipped as Apollo incarnate, as the son of God, as the son of Zeus. So the, the Roman Empire, the Roman emperor was, was worshipped in Thyatira as Apollo incarnate. To be a part of the guild of bronze workers meant that you had to participate in the rituals of belonging that surrounded guild membership, and this included uh, joining all the guild members in a feast honoring the patron deity, Apollo, the son of Zeus. And so Christ's words to Thyatira in this letter are from the very beginning specific to their context. 
These are, he starts out, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So from the very beginning, Jesus right away addresses this lie that the emperor of Rome is the Son of God, and he uses imagery that would have been very familiar to the Christians living in Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, who has, who has eyes of burning fire, like the blazing fires in, in the bronze-working furnaces, and feet of burnished bronze, the exquisite quality of, of polished brass. These are images that Jesus uses to describe himself in this letter to Thyatira, and these are also symbols of Christ's holiness. Fire and purified metal are used throughout the Bible as symbols of holiness and purity. And so right from the beginning of the letter, Jesus introduces this theme of holiness. His people are to be holy. And Jesus also has words of praise for the church in Thyatira. In spite of their difficult situation, living in a community where they really couldn't work unless they participated in pagan feasts and festivities, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first, or more literally, you're doing better than you did before. You're doing better. You guys are doing better. That's what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira. Jesus recognizes that the church in Thyatira is making progress in navigating this difficult cultural situation that they found themselves in. They are, they are remaining pure. They are living lives of love and faith and service and patience. But there is a problem in the church in Thyatira. We talked last week in the letter to Pergamum about the teachings of the Nicolaitans, not the Nickelodeons, all you youth on last Wednesday or two Wednesdays ago. Not the Nickelodeons, it's the Nicolaitans. We talked about the Nicolaitans in Pergamum and how they were advocating a sort of compromise uh, with the broader Roman culture that would allow Christians to benefit from the perks of upper-class Roman society by allowing them to attend the religious festivals and temple feasts that, that were required to be a part of this sort of upper strata of society. And in Thyatira, we have a similar teaching being taught. In the letter to Pergamum, Jesus characterized these teachings by pointing to the Old Testament figure of Balaam, who, uh, who taught Balak, the king of Moab, to lead the people of God into sin uh, through uh, pagan feasts and sexual immorality. And in the letter to Thyatira, Jesus again points to an Old Testament villain, to Jezebel, the evil queen of Israel, the wife of King Ahab, whose story is told in First and Second Kings. Jezebel was the, the pagan wife of King Ahab, the king of Israel, and she led the people of God away from the truth by leading them in the religious practices of their neighbors, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and worshiping the pagan gods, Baal and Asherah, fooling around with other gods, so to speak. And her life is summarized by Jehu in 2 Kings 9, verse 22, as one of idolatry and witchcraft, or to use the old King James Version, a life of whoredom and sorceries. And this is the imagery that Jesus picks up on um, when he speaks out against this false prophet in the church in Thyatira. Jesus doesn't seem surprised or bothered by the fact that there is a woman prophesying in the church there. We see in the book of Acts and in 2 Corinthians that women prophesied throughout the New Testament era of the church. But what Jesus has issue with here is what she is teaching. 
Because what this first century Jezebel is teaching is that in order to conquer sin, you have to know it intimately. That in order to defeat Satan, you have to learn his so-called deep secrets. And so this false prophet, like the Nicolaitans in Pergamum, is encouraging the Christians to participate in the pagan feasts, to participate in the broader religious life of the Roman Empire, to attend these feasts and festivals, to fool around with other gods, because it's there that Christians will discover the deep secrets of Satan and learn what they need to defeat him. She's sort of telling the Christians in Thyatira that they need to be double agents, that they need to be deep in the enemy's camp in order to figure out what the enemy's weaknesses are so that they can then go and defeat sin in their own lives, that they need to be immersed in this pagan culture so that they can know how to fight it. To conquer sin, you must come to know sin. And to defeat Satan, you must learn his secrets. This is what the prophet in the church in uh, Thyatira is teaching. This is a pretty personal topic for me because this is the type of Christianity that I was exposed to when I was in high school in Texas. This kind of Christianity that isn't satisfied with a simple life of holiness and faithfulness, a kind of Christianity that sort of requires people to have something, some terrible sin in their lives that they need to be saved from. When I, um, when I was in high school, uh, every Wednesday at my Christian school, we had a chapel service. And some local pastor, youth pastor, or ministry leader, or motivational speaker would come and, uh, and would speak to the whole school. And more often than not, they would share their testimony, because in Texas, that was what you did. People would share their testimonies. They, they would share their story of amazing grace, their story of how God snatched them out of the, the devil's schemes and brought them to Christ. And I didn't grow up in Texas, so... I was hearing these stories a lot of the time for the first time, and hearing these types of stories a lot of the time for the first time. Um, and they, they often followed the same narrative. They, they sort of went like, I was born in a Christian home, and my parents uh, were good Christians, and they brought me to church when I was a kid, but I never really made it my own, I never really meant it. And then I went off to college, and I got into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and my life was very sad. And then when I was at the very bottom, when I finally crashed, when I was so deep in sin that I couldn't get myself out, God spoke to me and brought me back to the faith. And now I'm a pastor or something. And I don't mean to knock these stories. Many of these stories were very powerful and moving and, they, and were wonderful examples of how God preserves his people throughout their lives. But the problem in Texas, I thought, was that... These stories of wandering and conversion became the dominant narrative of faith. They became the frame through which my, uh, my friends and my peers began to see their own faith stories. And so it became, for my friends in high school, it became almost an expectation that we would all go off to college and leave church and, and get into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and then when, when we were at rock bottom, when we couldn't get ourselves out of this situation, that God would speak to us and bring us back to the faith. 
And so after we graduated, I watched as most of my friends, one by one, left the faith, fooling around with other gods, exploring the so-called deep secrets of Satan in an attempt to find a conversion story. And many of them never came back. But this isn't the narrative that scripture gives to those who are in the faith. To those who find themselves in the community of God's people, Jesus calls for faithfulness. He calls for holiness. He calls us to flee from sin and to hold on to what we have until he comes again. He calls us to live lives of love and faith and service and perseverance like the church in Thyatira is doing. He calls us to stand firm, to put on the full armor of God so that we won't be trapped by the devil's snares. Jesus calls us to be holy. And scripture is clear that the children of believers are members of the covenant community, washed by the blood of Christ, clothed in his righteousness, adopted already as sons and daughters of God in Christ. And that's what we celebrated in the sacrament of baptism this morning. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, well, Paul's talking about the issue of marriage, and he, he says that even in a family where only one of the parents is a Christian, the children of that union are holy, that the children of that union are held by God. The children of believers are held in the same covenant bond that characterized the children of the people of Israel. Israelite children, when they were born, didn't have to become Israelites at some point. They were Israelites from birth. They were held in the covenant. They were held by the promises of God. All the promises that God made to his people were true for their little ones as well. Because they were already a part of God's people. They received the mark of the covenant. And as members of the covenant, they too were called to holiness. A holy people who belong to a holy God. And to this community of God's people in Thyatira, Jesus makes two promises at the end of this letter. To the one who overcomes, Jesus says, I will give authority over the nations, just as I have received authority from my Father. To a church that is suffering because they can't participate in the economic life of their city, Jesus promises authority over the nations. And he quotes Psalm 2, which we sang together in preparation for the message this morning. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Psalm 2 paints a picture of the rulers of the earth gathering together to overthrow the reign of God who created the heavens and the earth, to overturn the sovereignty of the God who holds all of creation in his hands. And this is a profound word of comfort to the people in Thyatira. Because they were in a situation where they proclaimed the sovereignty of God over all the earth. They proclaimed the kingship of Christ over all nations. They proclaimed the victory of Jesus over sin and death and Satan. But all around them, they saw the power of the kings of the earth, barring them from practicing their trade, demanding that they worship mortal men as gods. 
And in the face of the power of the Roman Empire, these Christians in the little city of Thyatira must have felt very small indeed. But to these faithful Christians suffering in poverty, suffering from economic ruin, Jesus promises authority over the nations, the same authority that he shares with his Father. The second promise that Jesus makes to them is that he will give them the morning star. And it might not be immediately obvious to us what this means. The morning star is a reference to the planet Venus, which is the brightest of the heavenly bodies uh, that we can see in our sky. It's so bright, in fact, that a lot of the times, and I saw this actually just earlier this week, um, when the sun rises, you can see it uh, shining still for about an hour after the sun rises, you can see the, the planet Venus in the sky, that it still shines brilliantly, even in the light of the sun. And, and this on its own could be a beautiful symbol of how the Christian church is supposed to be a bright light to the world, even, even shining brilliantly in the light of the sun. But if we read through the entire book of Revelation and make our way to the end of the book, we read in Revelation 22, verse 16, that Jesus says to John, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And it becomes clear at the end of this letter to the churches, at the end of this series of visions that God gives to John, it becomes clear that what Jesus is promising to the Christians in Thyatira is himself. And this is what Jesus promises to us today. The ultimate reward, the ultimate promise, we are told, is Jesus Christ himself. To those who walk the path of holiness, who stand firm, who live a life of faith and love and service and perseverance, Jesus promises himself. He promises a relationship with him. And this brings us back to the profound image that we saw in Revelation chapter 1 when we opened this series of, of Jesus, the great and terrible emperor of the universe, reaching down his hand and touching John on the shoulder and telling him, do not be afraid. The terrifying Lord of heaven and earth reaches down to us in tender mercy, the bright morning star comes down into our darkness. The God who stands above all of creation as its Lord and judge offers himself to us so that we may know him personally and intimately. Jezebel taught that Christians needed to know Satan so that they could fight him. That Christians needed to be familiar with sin so that they could conquer it. But Jesus here tells a different story. Jesus tells the Christians in Thyatira that they need to know him. That they need to know him. Because they will rule with him. That they need to come to know him through living simple lives of holiness and faithfulness. Jesus calls the church in Thyatira not to know Satan, not to know sin, but to know Christ. 
to know Christ so that when he returns, they may reign with him. Jesus offers himself to the church, calling us his own, marking us with his covenant, washing us with his blood, clothing us with his righteousness, adopting us as sons and daughters of God, holy and set apart to rule with him when he comes again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.